Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast series. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Marty Lustick and Dr. Betty Rabinowitz. Welcome, Marty and Betty. Thanks, Graham. Great to be here. Hey, Graham. It's good to be here. Today, we want to discuss how commonly used algorithms may introduce bias as they rely upon cost data as a proxy for health needs. An interesting article in the October 25th issue of Science is prompting this discussion. In the article, Obermeyer et al. find evidence in their research that black patients assigned the same level of risk by the algorithm are sicker than white patients. And they estimated that this racial bias reduces the number of black patients identified for extra care by more than half. At a given risk score, black patients are considerably sicker than white patients as evidenced by signs of uncontrolled illness. So that's the background here from this article that we want to talk about. Betty, you wrote a blog about this subject, which we published recently. Help our listeners understand a bit more about this issue. If biased algorithms are being used in healthcare settings, what are the implications for how care is provided? Uh, thanks, Graham. So this was a worrisome uh, revelation because I think we felt, those of us who are very engaged with population health, that the ability to measure risk supported the decisions that the practice makes on which patients deserve and need higher levels of care, including care management and other enriched services and interventions. And the truth of the matter is we felt as long as we were risk stratifying patients, identifying the high-risk patients, that we were doing the right thing by providing these patients those services. What emerges from the article is that there are built-in deficiencies in these algorithms that expose patients, uh, African-American patients in, in some cases and other minorities, to um, unfair uh, treatment and that there has to be other measures and other ways where we uh, measure risk that mitigate these biases. So, for example, if cost is the only indicator that the algorithm is using, African-American patients tend to uh, avoid care because of um, uh, lack of trust. They tend to have less access to care because of disparities in access in urban settings and underserved settings. When they get to physicians, physicians tend to have different referral patterns for these patients, and they tend to be referred less frequently for surgeries and less frequently for specialist uh, consultations. So all of these elements have to be mitigated in some way. And, and during the conversation today, we'll, I'm sure, talk about some ways to do that. But it, it, it was a very significant um, uh, finding and, and really timely that it was brought to the forefront. If health systems and payers are relying on this data, as Betty was saying, um, to target patients for high-risk care management programs, they're assuming that those programs and those individuals that have historically high utilization from a cost perspective will benefit the most. But I, I think there's probably something missing from that approach. So help, help fill in the blanks of what might be missing. So my own experience with this, it's interesting because to me, this is part of the much broader point that 
it's it's kind of like the analogy of the person who's looking for their keys under the lamppost because that's where the light is shining. You know, we've had claims data available for the longest period of time as a source of data, and there are always unintended consequences when you try to use it for something other than what it was designed for. And this is an example of trying to use claims data to, to support a clinical program when claims processing and the whole, all the rules around claims were never created for that reason. So that's part of the problem in my own experience. So when I was uh, on the provider side earlier in my career and we created our first database of all of our patients with diabetes, we stratified based on the severity of their illness and all of our interventions as a provider group were based on how sick our patients were. Um, we didn't we didn't have claims data in that setting, and so it didn't have. While there were, I'm sure, inherent biases in the way we did it, we didn't have the fundamental issue of claims. Now, more recently in my career, having spent time in the health plan, and seeing that this is actually part of, over and over again, we use claims data to try to accomplish other things, and we almost always have this kind of unintended consequence. So, so let's go into that a little bit further because uh, Betty's prior work helped uh, helped address some of this specifically. Betty, in your blog, you explain why multiple sources of data support a better assessment of actual care needs. And indeed, as you and your team were developing NextGen's population health solution, this was accounted for. So what sources does the population health platform use and how does that mitigate against introducing bias? So... Really, the, the answer to the question, what sources, is the more the merrier for the population health uh, tool specifically, but generally, philosophically, that's one of the ways to mitigate this risk because you can say that each additional source of data helps mitigate a, a blind spot in a single source data. In this case, we're talking about claims data, but any single source of data is is fraught with uh, with some uh, risk for bias. So, creating a tapestry of data sources that uh, has uh, clinical information in it, has laboratory information, it has some objective clinical measures of disease control and disease severity, having social determinants of health, HIE data, any other sources of, of uh, uh, data is useful and important. And in, in the pop health system, the next-gen population health platform, that is accommodated. The other way to mitigate this issue is not to use a single risk algorithm and provide users of the system with multiple algorithms that can be applied to the same cohort of patients. So take a group of 100 diabetics, provide the group with two or three or four uh, risk algorithms that they can apply and trust that algorithms may all have biases, but they're unlikely to have exactly the same biases and that you could resolve some of those uh, issues that way. So multi-source data, multiple algorithms, is, is one way to resolve some of these issues until obviously we can correct some of the core disparities that do exist in, in, in our healthcare system. But 
at least we shouldn't be adding to them with, with measurement tools. Um, Marty, from a health plan perspective, the claims cost experience for a white person, for an African-American person might actually add up to the same dollar amount in any given year. But the clinical services that were provided to that patient in the year might actually be quite different, different sites of care, um, different types of providers. How do those factors potentially introduce bias when we're planning for what kind of care patients might need? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question because I think it, what it unmasks is a lack of capability on the health plan side. That in the health plan world, for uh, other than Medicaid patients, they often have no idea what the ethnic racial makeup of their population that they serve happens to be. And so if people aren't filling that out in their enrollment forms, which happens in Medicaid, but not necessarily in, in commercial at all, then the, the health plan is blind to these issues and blind in a way that's, that's not healthy, obviously, for the patients because all these biases come through uh, in the way that uh, claims data is used uh, without the health plan having actually any awareness of it. So another question for both of you, knowing there are health care disparities, how are providers going about learning about the other needs that certain patient populations may have if it's not in the claims data, as you're saying, and, and go about incorporating those needs into their actual practice? Marty, do you want to start that one? Sure. I think this is a, a really important aspect of this issue. The, the article that you referenced at the beginning really focuses on the data infrastructure and how you stratify risk and decide who you need to intervene with. But if we step back and look at the issues more broadly, we know that healthcare disparities on racial and ethnic lines is a real issue across the country. And so on the provider side, I think there are opportunities to understand the community that you're serving and what are the unique needs of subsets of that community whether it's racial and ethnic or whether there happen to be a lot of people with uh, a large deaf population, for example, and how can you build programs that meet the unique needs of each of those uh, subsets of the community you serve so that you can focus on closing those disparities on the operational level in the way you do your day-to-day -day business. And I think if you complement that with improved abilities on the stratification and using a better population health tool that has less bias in it, that you really can make progress in this space. I think one of the um, important lessons from this is that as we develop these pretty sophisticated population health tools, give uh, groups the ability to identify cohort of patients, learn about them, risk stratify them, that is wholly important and obviously uh, teaching folks of the limitations of these tools and, and how to use them properly and how to mitigate with proper use of the system some of the uh, biases is important, but it is always important to remember that nothing substitutes clinical judgment and the knowledge that a good physician, a good primary care physician, a good primary care nurse, a good primary care med tech has in knowing their population uh, uh, very, very well. And that 
We used to laugh, uh, kind of kiddingly uh, say that in any of these decision points of getting a patient back uh, into assigning a patient to care management, that we should add a Gestalt button into the uh, software so that the Gestalt button can override any algorithm. So if an algorithm comes up with a obviously wrong answer, override it, clinically override it. If Mr. Smith is clearly a high-risk, complex patient with incredibly complex social determinants of health issues, was recently widowed, recently uh, lost a job, you know, all of the things we know can completely impact a patient's ability to cope with and thrive in in the context of illness override the system don't you know we've gone we've the pendulum has swung completely to the other direction where we had no tools and no ability to do analytics on groups of patients with common denominators to completely conceding clinical judgment to these these tools and i think it's a good wake up call to say nothing at the end of the day substitutes good clinical judgment it helps it supports it's a efficiency tool. You can look at 6,000 patients, find the top 300, and then for the rest, apply clinical judgment to it. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Betty, because at the health plan where I was, we had a pretty sophisticated algorithm that filtered through and identified high risk of patients. But we also had a policy that basically any clinical person in the organization, a medical director or a nurse or a social worker, if they were involved with a case in any way, just reviewing a service for prior authorization, and for whatever reason they thought the patient would benefit, they could make a referral and those folks went right to the head of the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an important thing to remember, especially in the context of this art, this uh, science article. And sadly, there are communities or practices who serve populations that in their entirety are high risk. How do you then take a group of 3,000 patients or 2,500 patients in a family physician's practice, risk stratify them with where in any other context, all of those patients would be at the top of the, at the top of the list. So these tools at some point cease being discriminatory when you apply them to a population where the risk is, is enormous. And then you have to start applying other forms of um, uh, interventions and decision-making on who gets scarce resources. And look, if we could uh, provide everyone with care management, it probably would be a desirable uh, thing to do. But that's not the reality, and we do have to allocate these services to folks who are most impactable. Now, impactability raises a whole other issue, which is... Once you've identified these high-risk patients, how do you then decide which of those patients will respond favorably to these enriched services? And my guess is that most of the tools that are being used to identify impactability have a fair amount of biases associated with them as well. Well, great. Thank you both. To our listeners, thanks for joining us today. You know where the subscribe button is. Dr. Betty Rabinowitz and Dr. Marty Lustig joined me for their conversation today, and I appreciate their perspectives. On behalf of NextGen Advisors, this is Graham Brown. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.